Southwest episode of Boagworld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing, and running websites on a daily basis. <laughs> I, wow, I, a thousand people in the room, I, I, amazing. Yeah, I, I can't believe this room has filled up so much. <laughs> I, they really should have put us in a much, much bigger room. Wow, I really appreciate all those that are standing at the back. <laughs> That's great. Um, I mean, what's this room hold? Do you reckon about? It's about a thousand. About a thousand. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm welling up. <laughs> I really am welling up. Well, thank you all for coming. That's really yes, good. Seriously, thank you. I, yes. I wanted to ask people if they've you have all heard us before. Is anybody who hasn't heard us before here? Really? No, we don't. We're know ignoring those not. people over there. Uh, really? Oh well, this is an experience. For you, so why are you here? Is it just because <laughs> you got lost? For those that may not have picked up the audio there, she thought there was another podcast in here. (laughs) What show were you what show were you hoping to hear? Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know is a very good show, yes, excellent. Yeah, you can go if you want to, you won't be offended. You're just gonna stay here until they turn up, are you? Yeah. We should have done it together. We could have doubled the numbers. Although the room's so full that actually you're thinking (laughs) full. How stupid of me. So, um, what this basically is, is um, a a live episode of Boag World that is kind of a culmination and wraps up the end of season one. It's not really season one, but you know what I mean. Um, And uh, so we're going to cover all the, give a kind of overview and question and answer time of the topics that we've covered so far um, in this season. Um, if you want to find out more about the season, you can sit here, you can go to boagworld.com forward slash season forward slash one. If you want to tweet about it, use the hashtag BWLive1. Um, I suppose I should, before going any further, introduce our guests, which consist of, on the end, Rob Borley, who has been on the show before. Round of applause for Rob. Hi. Wow, you guys are great. <laughs> Marcus Lillington, my wonderful co host. You weren't supposed to clap at that point. And our special guest star, the very wonderful, with his book in front of him, ready to pimp, Steve Krug, everybody. Woo! Hello, Steve. Thank you, Steve, for coming along. Yes, for making it such an unearthly hour of 11 o'clock. I am not a morning person. No, neither am I. I don't understand. I was tweeting um, a couple of days ago about how... I don't get people that are awake in the morning. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Life doesn't start until after midday. (laughs) Right, okay. So um, because this is all about season one, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the different topics that we've covered over the last six weeks on season one, and we're going to do questions. So it's all going to be question-driven, all right? So that means that you guys have to get up and ask questions, right? If you don't, I do have some questions that have been given by people on Twitter, but I much prefer live questions, really. That's a lot more interesting. Oh, this person's desperately trying to get through the door. Hello? 
That was great. No, <laughs> yes. it's good. It's good. Good entrance. So, um, so we're going to go through different topics, and we're going to uh, you're going to ask questions. You've got to take part in this, otherwise, this is going to be the worst episode ever. <laughs> also, the other thing is, um, at any stage, if any of you feel like one of the panel are not performing well enough. <laughs> Right? Just go up to the, to the microphone and say, I vote so-and-so out. <laughs> right? They get to sit down, and then someone else who wants to answer the question can come up on stage. All right? So that's how we're going to work it. Does that sound like a plan? I'll take that as We're locking yes. the door, by the way. You can't get out. Right. So, now, obviously, because we're talking about season one of the show, um, the first thing I'm going to do is pimp the book that goes with it. Um, so you've got to buy the book at boagworld.com forward slash season forward slash one. But I'm actually going to change things a little bit. Because um, of the current situation in Japan, we thought we would uh, raise some money for that and get you all giving. So what we're going to do is if you go to um, South by Southwest, so SXSW, Number four, japan.org forward slash Boag World. Right? I hope everybody's got their laptops out and are doing that right now. What I want you to do is give any amount of money. If you give over five dollars, then email me afterwards and you'll get a free copy of the book. Okay? And that applies whether you're in the room now or whether you're listening to this podcast in a year's time. I don't really care. So go along to that URL and get involved. So basically, you're going to get the book for free if you give. So that's the idea. Okay, so enough of that. Let's move on to the show. In the main, we're going to start off by looking at the subject of business, business objectives, right? So what you're seeing on the screen, this is what we're talking about now is business objectives. Think of your questions now. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to success criteria in a minute so you can start planning ahead. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to drop this microphone back in its place. <laughs> Paul running. That was interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Run away <laughs> Right Okay So what we're going to do is we'll kick off with the question That I've already got pre-prepared But I'm going to wait for you guys You're going to support me and do some questions Right So our first question is from Matt Curry Who remembers Matt? He's been on the show before Nobody. No one <laughs> Matt, Matt will be really pleased to hear Out of a thousand people, that's remarkable That is quite remarkable, no one out of a thousand people Okay, so Matt Curry is, uh, is um, one of our clients actually And we've done a lot of work with Matt in the past um, And he's a bit of an analytics guru Now he says Does our, all of our work on websites actually matter? This is a question for the panel and for the audience Does any of our work on websites actually matter? Should we actually be putting all of the emphasis on our product, our price, and our positioning? And should we be more focused on that than we are on worrying about the website? So does anybody want to kick off on that? Rob, you, you know Matt. You have to deal with him daily. I know what Matt's answer would be. What's, Matt, what's going to Matt's answer then? Essentially, if you're selling stuff online, that's the point of your website. You want, you want to pimp your products. I guess you, you've got you, you, potentially you could just want to make a very pretty website for the sake of making a very pretty website, but if you're running a business um, and you've got to pay the bills and you want to make some money, then the product is surely the king. You want to get that out there. That's the point of it. That's why we do what we do. I think what I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question, <laughs> but um, that's a surprise. I think I think what he's trying to say <clears throat> is: is it worth investing? in an ongoing way on your, on your website, you just slap your products up, put the price next to it, and hope people will come and buy it? Or should you be continually testing, uh, refining, and making your website better? And I think I'm going to pimp your talk tomorrow. Um, 
where the work we've done for the company that he used to work for um, basically made a massive difference to how much, how much product they sold. So the answer to the question is, yes, you should be refining your website. I and, don't and, think that's a question. Oh, well, okay. I, well, I, <laughs> I've turned it into one I could answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a good plan. I think he's more getting at that we invest so much money and time getting our websites right when perhaps there are other things like, you know, is the product right? Is the pricing for the product right? Is the, you know, the way that we're pitching the product to the market? You know, all of those things are just as important really as the website itself. Maybe. I don't know. Steve, you got opinion? I have a vague opinion. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I went to see Josh Porter yesterday. Oh, yeah. Metrics, and in answering one question, he essentially said uh, what I think, which is that um, uh, you, per- you better have good content. Mm. You know? It's like a lot of people kind of forget that, <laughs> that <laughs> well, the content yeah. should be really good and, and that that may have more impact than any of these other things you can do. Yeah. Um, so if I had a choice between having a flashy website and having a really good product, I'd probably choose a really good product. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. I guess, as an agency, it's very easy to fall into the trap of wanting to produce a fantastic website for your client and 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 that becoming the be all and end all we become very precious about what we're doing you know we want something which we can use as a portfolio piece um but actually the client is interested in selling their products that, right. that that's why they've employed us and it, it does raise the question when you're brought in as an outsider if you if your client is selling a product that nobody's actually going to want whether you tell them that or not yeah which is always a neat question mm. um just, yeah who would have the guts to turn around to a client and say your product's shit? <laughs> I don't know whether I would. It's a hard one, isn't it? I've, I've, have you I've done, done it? it? Not in those exact words. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, I have done it. I mean, I, I sort of feel like that's my first responsibility when I go in and, and you know, I've looked at what the client's doing. That kind of my first responsibility is to kind of say, is anybody going to want to buy this? Yeah. You know, uh, because it's probably a question they've considered, but they're so panicky that they can't really do anything about it that they, they've stopped asking it internally. So if you're coming in as an outsider, I feel like you're doing them a disservice if you don't at least raise the question again. Mm. Are you talking about from uh, a kind of startup point of view or? Anybody, anybody. Well, I mean, you, you know, if it's, if it, I mean, if it's Amazon, you know, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> if it's been a going concern. Yeah then it may be part of it, part of something new that they're doing, where you, you, you know, would basically want to say, is this really a good idea? Sure. Mm. You know. Yeah. Uh, oh, we've got a question. Or a comment. Uh, yeah. no, question. Is that okay? You done? Yeah, yeah, go for it. No, no, go <laughs> we will talk forever, so just, uh, okay. just uh, jump up. Um, I've been working on a lot of mobile design lately, and it's been frustrating at times because we're taking a rather large site with complicated navigation and being told to put it into a mobile site, which is difficult. I want to know what's your take or anyone's take on designing for mobile first, and is that something, a a trend that we'll see more and more of in the future, or or do we just need to rethink uh, how we're doing the two different things? Yeah. I know, uh, Rob, you're really into mobile at the moment, aren't you? A a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think... You have to treat, I think you have to treat the site as something different. The mobile site is a different thing to the website, and you can't necessarily translate one direct into the other. It has to be, be a different project, if you like, a different way of thinking. Um, so if, you, if you're just trying to take a complicated site and put it, make it fit on a tiny little device, it's not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I think you have to treat it as something new. Have you done much in the way of usability testing on mobile sites? Uh, well, None. No, <laughs> well, fair enough. Then. Yeah. I, well, actually, I, I, I honestly don't do that much usability testing 
Oh, right. Really? Anymore because it was silly for somebody to pay my rates to do usability testing when I'm telling them they can do it themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of a conundrum there, but yeah. Um, but it does seem like uh, isn't there? Aren't there? Haven't there been the huge flurry of articles about doing what you said, which is doing the mobile first? Mm. You know, and then and and then expanding that out into the. Um, the full web presence if you're a startup. And there seem to be, uh, I, I know I've read some of those articles and forgotten them immediately because I don't work in mobile, so, but, but it, there does seem to be a certain logic to it. Yeah, there, there, there have been a lot of articles about it. Um, and what I love about that approach is that you go to the essence of the site right away, you're forced to. Mm. Um, and then if you need to, you can build it out further for the, for the full uh, right. site. Uh, I'm, I'm, personally, I'm not sure... I would even take that approach because it's like implying that implying that a mobile site is the essence of a you know a bigger website. It, in my opinion, isn't really the right, right way of thinking about it because um, I think they've both got going back to our subject business objectives. I think often they have very different business objectives. That you've got a, you know a, a, um, your main business website, your main desktop website, whatever we're going to call it, has one set of things that it's going to want to achieve, while the mobile site has a, probably a, a, a different set um, because you've got to take into account context that somebody using a mobile device um, has uh, they themselves are going to have different tasks they want to complete you know, which aren't necessarily the same, there isn't necessarily massive overlap, there could be but not always, so I think they're just as Rob said, almost just two separate projects that may include some similarities but they may not you know and, but there's a cost associated with that which right. I think at the moment a lot of clients aren't willing to, to pay they'd much prefer to essentially have a stripped down version of their site as their mobile one which is a fair enough starting point because you know this is a new area if they don't have huge numbers of mobile users yet that's probably a good entry point but I think ultimately you're talking about two separate sites in my opinion I think it's analogous if you, if to, if you like how when, when the web first came along so uh, a shop might have a print catalogue you know where you, you write down the numbers and you phone them up um, and, and you do it over the phone but then when the website came along you didn't just try and take your print catalogue and turn it into a website and I think it's the same with mobile I think it's a different medium it needs to be looked at in a different way yeah go for it you've got a question Yes, uh, I'm a technical director at, at my agency, and one of the biggest things as a technical person is, is you know, there's this clash between art designers and developers. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that we try to do is make money, and so, but our designers always want to make a one-show website. Yeah. A website that's going to blow everybody's brains out of the water and all that stuff. Um Back to the first question that you had asked, how do you educate a designer to understand that not every website is a creative opportunity, yeah. but more of a business opportunity? And I, I don't think, I think there's a difference between scenistic beauty as opposed to, you know, really good web standards like Amazon versus, um, you know, a beautiful CVB website or something like that. Yeah. Um, how do you educate your designers to understand the difference? Yeah, I don't think you can educate designers. They're not intelligent enough. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? You know, it's like trying to train a cat. No, um, this is similar to that, that, is, that is what you really believe, isn't it? It is absolutely. As somebody that used to be a designer, I feel that I can speak with confidence. Used to be. About that. I like it. You're, You're a recovered designer. Is that the end? Yeah. I think this is um, this is similar to how do you train or how do you inform a client into. Uh, what's the right design for them rather than the design they think they want. Does that make sense? Um, 
and the same would apply to a designer that's wanting to design for himself or herself. It's about um, understanding that a website has a specific audience or audiences and that the, the design of the site should, should be for those audiences, not for the designer, not for the client necessarily. So it's basically teaching people that, that that's the starting point, if you like, that you, you should be designing for your audiences. I, I do have an answer for this one. Oh, good. I told Paul beforehand I may, I may, have, may, I may have answers for like two questions. So, so. so this is uh, one of this them. This is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, I'm on, on, on a sort of hobby horse these last couple of years trying to get people to do their own usability tests. And, because, and I'm emphatic about it because I find, having done this stuff for like 20 years, I find that watching usability tests are kind of the only transformative experience out there. And you need a transformative experience. Uh, and the reason why you need a transformative experience is because the people, these people on your team. So you get the designers, developers, you get marketing people, you get whatever, and they all look at the site differently. It's all the, you know, it's like the Indians and the elephant, whatever. And uh, the, the problem is that, that when designers look at a website, any website, um, what they're looking for is a pleasant aesthetic experience. That's what they enjoy. That's what they're, and I always like to say there are endorphins involved, you know? If they're looking at some, the website that's got some kind of elements of sophisticated design or some new aesthetic elements, they're endorphins. So the result is that they think that this is what everybody likes about websites. And the reason that they, they are doing the job that they're doing because that's how they feel. You know? So we're talking about very deep-seated kind of emotional response. Uh, that actually got them into the career they're in. And the same thing with developers. Developers look at a website. They like looking at websites that are very complicated, that have a lot of moving parts, that, you know, they like reverse engineering in their head. They like trying to figure out how it works. So, and that releases endorphins for them. So they assume that everybody likes figuring out how things work. Um, so it's very hard for them to get past that. And I find that the, the one experience that I've seen that actually works to get people past that is if you get them to observe uh, even a couple of usability tests where they're watching people actually use the stuff. People who are not there, because nobody spends any time watching people use the stuff unless it's in a usability test. How, you know, who, who does that? None of these people have any time to do that. So if you can make it attractive enough that, and easy enough for them to observe some usability tests, very often it, it is to some extent transformative. You know, they come out with a little bit more of a realization that not everybody is like them and not everybody wants the same things that they want. Mm. So that's, that's cool. We saw the guys at Twitter doing exactly that uh, a talk yesterday morning. Yeah. Uh, it was a wonderful lesson to take and away from. Yeah. They did this really interesting mm. thing where they would actually project the usability test sessions onto the wall in the room where the designers and uh, developers were working. So they had no choice but to, <laughs> <laughs> to see going on in the background while you're working. <laughs> People struggling to use the stuff they're building. Yeah. And, yeah so that's a very telling lesson. Oh, dear. It's Craig. Hello, Craig. Hello, Craig. Hi. Um, just to build on what the previous question was saying and the discussion is now, is there, <clears throat> is there space for a designer to have a style, a personal style, or is that something that sh should be avoided because you're focusing on the use of, on the client, on their needs? Or is there a separate genre or a separate industry that does benefit from having the personal style and a separate area that doesn't? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think, in my opinion, there are, there are <coughs> kind of... Every designer has a style, right? And it, it, they can't help but have a style because your design style is influenced by your personality and, and who you are. For example, I would love to design like Cameron Mole, who does beautiful, <coughs> subtle 
you know, design. But I'm not a beautiful, subtle person, therefore I can design like Cameron. True. <laughs> um, so, so there's kind of one of two things that happen. Either you get clients that go to a designer specifically for that style, right, because that style ties in with their brand or whatever. Um, but then you get other groups, and I think Headscape is probably an example of this, where we try and keep quite a diverse style so that we, we just mould in with what the, client, you know, the client's branding is. And I don't think either is right or wrong, and I don't think either necessarily damages the business objectives or the success criteria or the usability of the site because there's almost a difference between aesthetics um, and usability and functionality. You know, you can have... You can make a perfectly usable site with a very, you know, very specific style yeah. to it, would be my feeling. Yeah. Fashion's changed as well. That's an, another thing. But then you could argue that maybe that's part of um, creating the right site for a user. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. we need to move Should on. We yeah, move, yeah, let's move on to the next section. Sorry, was somebody going to jump in? I was. Oh, go, go on, Steve. That's it turns out I have an answer for everything. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think I think uh, that there isn't really an inherent conflict between usability and design. So I think sites should be as, as well, uh, you know, aesthetically designed as you as you can. I love sites that are really nicely designed. Yeah, absolutely. As long as they work, that's kind of the caveat. As long as they work, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, we have a question. We we'll move on to success criteria and how to measure the success or otherwise of your website. And we have a question. Yes. I had a question related to something that came up a while ago about the end of the personal website, about do individuals need websites anymore? And you yeah. talk about individuals and their personal brand and their own personal business objectives. And I've seen the same thing starting to prop up around companies. Um, watching the Super Bowl ads, you know, last year all the ads had the company's pers- or their corporate websites listed as their URL. And this year a lot of them had their Facebook fan pages yeah. listed as their URLs. Do companies still need websites? Does every company need a website? Or, you know, are there things that there are a lot of companies that don't really have any business objectives with their own website and they really should just be going out to Facebook and those other kinds of channels? What does the panel think about that? Good question. I think a lot of it depends on your audience. Um, In in a different life, I do a lot of youth work and work with a lot of teenagers. Um, And for most of them, for teenagers, Facebook is the internet. Um, you know, they, they get their, 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 they find YouTube videos because it's on the internet. They know what's going on in the world because it's on Facebook because they're friends. You know, the things, the places to go, the things to visit, the links to see, all comes to them via their Facebook feed. Um, and so I think if you, especially if you've got a brand which is aimed at that demographic, then it could be argued that you don't need your own website. You just need a Facebook place. Um, whether or not everything will shift that way. Oh. Has anybody got an opinion on that? that what, what you guys think about that? Nobody has opinions. Oh, yeah. Come, come here. Come, come here. here. Talk, talk here. Yes, come join us. We throw Marcus off. Marcus is now being replaced. Hello, what's your name? My name is Anita Cater. Hello, Anita. Hello. So what do you think about this? Well, it depends on what kind of company you have. Yeah. And, and in who you're marketing to. If you are just an individual and you're looking to socialize with people, then maybe Facebook is all you need. But if you're a corporation and you're... How you're marketing to other corporations. Maybe you need a bigger brand, a bigger site yeah. to talk about what your products are, your services are, and you'll need a mm. corporate site, yeah. a, split, a space to house all your information and what. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's that's the interesting thing about business objectives, in, in my opinion, is that you know your business objective might be to 
I don't know, sell more widgets. Now, does it really matter where you sell those widgets? You know, if you look at someone, someone like... Um, you know, Amazon, for example, who's, who sells lots of different things. You know, okay, yeah, you can go to the Amazon website to buy stuff, but you can also, you know, you can anybody can have an affiliate, you know, link with Amazon, so you can buy it from other people's sites. You know, it's it's the the selling process that matters rather than the medium through which you're selling it. Twitter is another great example. Twitter would never have taken off if the only place you could tweet was on the the Twitter.com website. You know, but actually they, they, they opened up their API and well, this is a bit controversial right now, isn't it? Because they're, they're saying that they're going to close that down a bit more. But the principle <laughs> being that, um, you know, you could go and buy stuff from anywhere. Oh, sorry, tweet from anywhere. And so I think, you know, whether you're delivering it via Facebook or a LinkedIn profile or anywhere else, it doesn't really matter as long as it, it meets those business objectives would be my right. feeling. Right. And I guess it also depends on, uh, say, a travel site. Yeah. So you might want to have a social site as well. So you want to be on Facebook, you want to be on Twitter, and you're wanting to capture those users so that they will then come to your travel site and yeah. book travel. So it is definitely important to have that face and yeah. that marketing presence. Cool. Good. Should we take the next question? This goes back to uh, an earlier point you were making about... Um, what your role is with business objectives, but it also ties in with success criteria. And, and the question is, when you're an eva- evaluating a client or a job, what is your position on, you look at a, uh, a project and say, there really isn't much hope for success. Do you still take that on? Do you try to work with what you have? Or do you just say, this isn't going to work out for us? Oh, that's a good question. It's definitely a question for Marcus. <laughs> that's a Marcus question. Would you, would you accept a client? Would you, you know, let them sign on the dotted line if you didn't think we could meet their success criteria? Why? <laughs> why <laughs> so quiet? Um, no. Yes, I'll take their money. Yeah, and show me the on. money. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> and the reason being, uh, and I've talked about this many times over the years, is. It's not. That's just one example of why you need to kind of walk away sometimes. Uh, if you know you can't deliver, then you're going to end up losing money. You're going to. You are going to be in a position uh, where you're not going to make any profit on the on yeah. the on the project because you're going to set a fixed price or whatever um, for the work you're going to do, and it's not going to deliver what the client wants. Therefore, you're going to end up doing more and more and more and more work, um, and it's going to become an, a difficult relationship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yes, walk away, basically. Walk away. Yes. Good advice. Walk away from clients. They have nothing but trouble. <laughs> okay, let's move on to user-focused stuff. Anybody got any usability? We've got Steve Krug here. <laughs> Come on. Usability questions. None. None. Nobody cares, Next about, category. Next Nobody category. cares about usability, Steve. They, they, must, disappoint you. they must have all read your some... book, Steve. I don't they haven't got any questions. I've, got, I've actually got some questions from online. Oh. Okay. So here's the question. I don't know whether it's directly related to usability. It's about... There's a lot of talk at the moment about how, you know, um, have you ever you heard anybody say this, something along the lines of, you know, um, making a site usable is like making food edible, and that actually we should aspire to make it more than just edible, but delightful and, and wonderful. So there's a lot of talk about making your websites delightful, all right, and adding these little things in. And this is a question from Ben Hopper. He says, most design delighters seem to revolve around the idea of humor or making people smile. But is that always appropriate? You know, what alternatives are there to kind of 
just making people smile, but still giving them that kind of wow factor. Does that make sense as a question? You've got no opinion sure. on this, you? I can tell from, <laughs> <laughs> from the blank look. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, there are these funeral sites. You know, yes. Do online funerals? I would think humor is in. You don't want to make people no. laugh. No. No. Funeral site, no. really. No. Uh, I, I, you know, I think you. I mean, is the question really is it, is it always um, is it always appropriate to to use humor as the thing that makes the site? Delightful? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not like a. I'm not like a. I, I have to say I haven't expanded into the delight world oh, okay. in, in my business. I, I know a lot of people are are writing very interesting stuff about. Okay, you can you can make it to work okay, but you should be aspiring to more than that. Do you and think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves? Is I, there I, an arrogance to say, oh yeah, we've kind of dealt with? No, because some people some people can do it. I mean, some people are completely capable of of you know doing doing sites that go beyond that actually you right. know, engage people in a very active way and 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 are satisfying and rewarding and enjoyable. And I think that's great. It's kind of it's kind of like uh, should a site be you know aesthetically. Pleasing, it's sort of in the same category. Yes, if it works, yeah. you know, don't don't get don't get ahead of yourself and start focusing your attention on making it delightful when it does, still doesn't work. Yeah, you know, when people can't go in and find what they need or, or, or do what they need to do. So I think it's a great thing, and I love sites that are you know that I get the same way as the say. I love sites that that make me feel like you know really engaged with it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but uh, not if they don't, not if they don't work. So work I, first and then build on that. You know, and 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 don't do it. I mean, well, particularly don't try it. Don't try it if you're not good at it. You know, there's sort of nothing worse, that, more cringeworthy than somebody who's tried to build the light into a site and they have no knack for it at all. Yeah, you know? and they've come up with what they think is a really exciting idea. But my 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 test for a really exciting idea, for whether you've got a really good new idea, is you pitch that idea. You know, you do the elevator pitch to like half a dozen people. Okay, and if they all say basically that's a fabulous idea, when are you going to launch it? Then it's a good idea. Yeah. If they say that's a really great idea, d- don't go there. Okay, <laughs> it's like because because yeah, everybody's going to think something's a good idea in the abstract. But think, if it's really a good idea, people are going to get very very jazzed about it. It rem- reminds me of you know with these design delighters, it's a bit like I don't know when somebody tells jokes but can't tell them very well. I'm just you know saying. <laughs> Sorry? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we have another question about user-focused stuff. I do have a question for you, Steve, about usability. Um, I teach a university class, uh, like an intro to web publishing, and I have all my students read articles that are about, you know, five or ten years old just to kind of introduce them to these topics. And one of the things I have them read is Jacob Nielsen's Usability 101. And he lists, he says usability is a quality attribute, and he breaks it down into five different um, attributes beyond that. The first is learnability. And that's what I think most people think of when they think of usability, is how easy is the interface to learn. And people often quote your book title, Don't Make Me Think, in that regard. Um, But two others that he also lists I think aren't as talked about as much. He talks about efficiency, like once you've learned the design, how easy is it for you to keep doing tasks. And memorability, after you come back after a while, how easy is it for you to pick up where you left off. And I was wondering if you could talk about those things, because I think the learnability part is overemphasized, that... Um, a lot of times you learn a design and right. then it becomes tedious. And so I always tell people, you know, don't right. make me think, but then don't bore me later either. Um, where would you see all that fitting into the web and web applications, websites, and usability? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I, um, I'm like Jacob's biggest fan. 
Uh, Jacob comes in for a lot of flack because he takes extreme opinions, but I, I, I have always liked Jacob. I learned a lot of what I know from Jacob because he's been doing it forever, and he's really smart, and he's really nice. I like him personally. Um, so I always read alert, alert boxes, and that's that, I remember that one. And it's he's he's right. I mean, it's it's uh, and other people have talked about those aspects of of usability that there are these these different aspects of usability. Um, you're probably right. I don't think about it that way, but you're probably right that we do focus too much on learnability. I focus intensely on learnability because I feel like if it's not learnable, then the other ones don't matter. You know, and I see so many sites where basically you go to the site and you just don't get it. You know, in fact, that's like the biggest problem is you go to the site and you just don't get it, and uh, and that's often not that hard a problem to fix, but people don't don't fix it. So so I do focus on learnability, um, uh, efficiency, and memorability are are very important. Efficiency is much more important if it's a site that you're going to be using more than once. So, for instance, if you've got a web application or something, efficiency becomes important. Uh, for a lot of sites, efficiency isn't all that important as long as sort of the drag of the site doesn't exceed your interest in getting the thing done or bought or whatever. Um, and memorability is sort of the same. Memorability, I mean, if you're not going to come back here, the memorability doesn't matter. So those two become much more important if it's something that you're going to use on a, uh, on a recurring basis, which is, you know, not true of most sites. I mean, if you think about most sites that you go to, you'll, you'll figure them out once and then you'll never go back there again. So they are important, but I, 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 think, I think a focus on, on learnability isn't necessarily misplaced because if you don't get that right, then the other ones don't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Yes. Hi, yeah. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about usability testing. And, um, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that's unlikely. I, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> talk a little bit. We can talk about it. Don't know anything about it, though. It's a little bit. I can't talk a little bit about usability. <laughs> okay, well, if I clarify a little bit, um, we, we have a challenge a little bit where I work at knowing how extensive to make a test and where to fit it in in the process from, you know, from the sketch stage to the kind of polishing and Photoshop stage. Yeah. And, and then building, you know, do you, uh, sometimes we test at the end kind of if it's a very small site. And as a designer developer, of course, I know where to click so it works perfectly well. Um, <laughs> but we often find it's kind of being squeezed into the timeline and sometimes budget doesn't allow. But obviously, the main thing is for it to be usable. So I feel like something we, we have challenges with. Have you? Okay. Oh, I, that's not yet. why I put it there. I didn't no, put it there for haven't. that. This, this, He's holding up my book. This is, this is Steve Krug's um, Rocket Surgery Made Easy. I love this book, uh, be, partly because um, it, it talks about go, having this you know, one day every month where you're continually testing. So, and, and not to say, okay, once we finish the wireframes, then we're going to test. Or once we finish the design comps, we're going to test. Instead, it says, we're going to have this date, and wherever we are at this date, we're going to test. Which I think, I think that's a really good discipline. Yeah. That was the one thing that I really took away from this. But, yeah, Thank sorry. You. Thank you. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have it here for you to hold up. I had it here in case, <laughs> in case somebody asked a question. I, I had to remember what I said. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was telling you before, I, 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 you know, every once in a while some, somebody will quote something from the book, and, and I'm like, that's in there? <laughs> no, it's really embarrassing. That's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, Paul just made my... My main point, my, my maxim in the book about testing is a morning a month, that's all we ask. Okay. I think it's much better to do testing on a, on a to, for, for one thing, start is there, start, the other, another maxim is start earlier than you think. Okay. Because you can never start too early. Even if you've got a sketch on a napkin, you should be testing that because you'll learn useful stuff. It won't take long and you'll learn useful stuff. But I do think that routinizing it is, is very important. 
because the tendency has always been to say, well, okay, when are we going to use ability tests? Well, we'll use ability tests when we have wireframes, and then we'll use ability tests when we have comps, and then we'll use ability tests when we have a first working prototype. And the fact is those dates always get pushed, um, and then you're trying to recruit people around some date that's probably not going to end up being exactly where you think it's going to be. Um, and the net is that you end up doing less testing than you should. Whereas if you say, all right, we're going to test one morning a month, and we're basically going to be able to do it every month because we're only going to test three users because three users are going to get you more than you can fix in a month. Um, and uh, routinizing it has all kinds of advantages because people know, okay, third Thursday every month is usability testing. Okay, you pick that date, you pick that day uh, during a time of the month when people don't have that much work, so you can, so it's easier for them to come and observe, which is very important, and. Uh, it makes it easier to do your recruiting. You know every third Thursday we're going to need three people in here to do testing. And then you test, as Paul said, you test what you've got then because you'll always have something that's worth testing. Um, How does that work in, you know, in our kind of situation where we run an agency, so we're working with you know, a variety of clients at different times? I can understand how that kind of works if you're testing internally within an organization. Right, right. But that doesn't really fit as well if you're an agency that's going through a project. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I don't know because I've never thought about your case. Okay, that's cool. I, I was basically, I had in mind people who are out there in the fields who have been handed the assignment of doing usability. Yeah. You know. mm. I mean, I think it, in my kind of head, I think it can still work because you just have a date, potentially a date every month where you test, and you test whichever project is, right. is best suited at that particular right. time for doing the testing. Only, the only tricky bit there is that depending if you actually want to do some Recruiting of particular audiences, yeah, you then you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't know which audience. But yeah, no, but you also know that one of my maxims is recruit loosely and grade on curve because yeah. I don't think having people from your target audience makes all that much difference. Yeah. makes less difference than you think. Yeah. So. I think it's up to our project managers to um, think about it from a project by project basis and work it into the project. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, what do you think, Rob, Mr. Project Manager? Indeed, I, I think <laughs> it's something that we find really hard to do um, because it's not. I don't think it's part of our culture yet to, to test continually. No. We are, we are as an agency, and I, I don't know about an industry, but as an agency, we still fall into the trap of testing right at the end. Um, yeah. And then what happens when it's broken? Well, you know, just put it out anyway. I have to challenge him on this. This is not a campaign. That's not the way. This is how you used to do it. I believe we did design testing very early on in projects. Yeah, sure. Sure. So uh, I just <laughs> had to point that out. It has to be part of the project plan. I think when you're drawing up your plan, you have to you have to decide when you're going to do the testing, how often you're going to do it, and you have to put it in your plan so that the dates don't move. Um, if, if you kind of let it as this ethereal thing, it will always push out. You leave it right to the end, it will get squeezed. Right. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I did ask for that. You did. <laughs> um, I mean, what another thing is, do you think this kind of monthly cycle applies to all websites, or are there there wet, uh, occasions where, you know, if a website isn't changing that much, then surely testing it every month would be over the top. I don't think so. Oh, okay. No, I think you should stick to your stick to. You should be testing. You should always be testing. Right. Um, and if you if you, uh, you know, there's always something new that you've introduced, or if there hasn't, there's something that's that's not performing lately as well as you think it should be. Yeah. Uh, there's always something you worry about, and if and if that's not the case, if none of those apply, then test some competitors. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I like that idea. Testing competitors is a very good idea. And something that I don't think we do anywhere near as much. Nobody does. I, it's like a free, it, it, you've got this free prototype. Exa- exactly, against. exactly. Somebody, I, I, I would say somebody went to the trouble of building a full-scale working prototype yeah. of a different design approach to what you're doing. And they left it out. They left the keys in the car. They left it out there for you to use. Yeah. Do some testing. Absolutely. You know, you'll learn a lot of stuff. I totally agree with that. Any more questions on usability before we move on to calls to action? Okay, we're going to move on. Calls to action. So we, we spent a whole show talking about calls to action and, uh, and how to go about that. Um, I've got some questions that were sent in on that, but if you want to go up and ask any, that's great. Andy Mule says, um, we use a lot of psychological tricks, right, when it comes to calls to action, don't we? You read about them all the time. Mm-hmm. I've written about the little psychological tricks we use to nudge users in the direction we want to go. And Andy is asking whether manipulating people is ethical and that whether it's actually okay for us to play off of people's psychological weaknesses in order to get them to complete calls to action. And I just thought that was a really interesting question to ask. You know, are we actually, are we as bad as marketeers now where we try and trick people into doing what we want them to do? And anybody got any opinions on that, either in the audience or, or on, the, on the stage? Anybody? Yes, that's what we do. <laughs> and you're all right with that, are you? Um, yeah, I think so. Why? Because I, I, it's a bit like going to a supermarket. You go to a supermarket and uh, you get to the checkout and, and all the Mars bars and the sweets and the chocolate, you know, all the chocolate and stuff is there at the checkout because they know that when mum or dad is there and they've got two screaming kids because they're in the queue, they know that if they reach over and give them a Mars bar, they'll keep them quiet and, and they'll, make, they'll sell a lot more Mars bars. Um, and it's, it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's playing off that psychology of that situation. And, and people have always done that. And so we're doing exactly what, 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 what they're doing. No different. What do you think, Steve? I, 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 this sort of hit me over the head. I was listening to a talk about, about a year ago, and it hit me over the head. And I thought I would like to write something about it. I haven't had a chance. Um, I, the way I ended up thinking about it was I, I'm a little concerned that us, about usability in particular, that usability is moving towards the dark side. Yeah. That, that we, we were originally, we were user advocates, and our job was to make life easier for users, to make sure that they actually could do what they wanted to do. And now we are being asked more and more to make judgments and find proof about whether or not people are successfully being manipulated. And it, it, it doesn't concern me. I don't mind manipulating people. I mean, I'm manipulated all the time and I expect it. And it's like, you know, the price you pay for a lot of things that people are going to try and manipulate you. But I'm concerned about usability as a profession that, that we're sort of going down some slippery slope without realizing it. Yeah. You know, and transforming it to something else. Would but an example I, be often when you're... When you, when you move towards a shopping basket or a donation page, you lose all the all the navigation suddenly disappears, so you can't right. get away from the page. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a perfect example for me of uh, of manipulation. But I think there's a difference between manipulation and the tricking people, and tricking people is wrong. Okay. Yeah. Right. Manipul- I, what's yeah. the difference then? It's easy to I, say that. Well, I had an inter- I had an interesting quasi ethical dilemma once. I was t- right. teaching teaching a workshop, and I did. Uh, I used to have people uh, submit URLs and we would do a, a, one demo test. I actually still do that, come to think of it. I do one demo test based on one of the URLs of the person who's come to the workshop. And at, th- at this point, I, I won't name the name, but it was this company that advertises on TV to sell CDs that will teach you how to use your computer and software, and, 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 and you get one free. 
and you get one free. And it turned out, we did the test on it, and it turned out when you went through the thing, and I knew this because I, I would go through and do the test beforehand. So I did this live test, and it turned out the participants going through it, and they realized after a while that there's fine print in there uh, whereby they would be getting this free CD, but uh, the, and they could ship it back, but if they they had to not only ship it back, but they had to go in and do something else to say that they didn't want to keep receiving them. And if they didn't do it in time, they were going to end up paying like $150. Yeah. And it was clearly, it was clearly trickery. Yeah. It was clearly trickery. It was a bad kind of trickery. Mm-hmm. And so the poor part of the person who was representing the website was there in the audience. And I'm kind of like, is this what it looks like? And he said, yeah, yeah, it, it is actually. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I guess it depends with this whole manipulation thing. Of, it depends whether you're using the power for good or evil, really, doesn't right. it? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, to, to, I'm quite happy, because we do work on a lot of charity websites, mm-hmm. I'm quite happy to pull out all the stops. You know, when yeah. it comes to making, encouraging people to make a donation on a, on a charity website, uh, I'm kind of fine with that. But, you know, in other situations... But is selling stuff unethical? Surely not. You can, you know, people no, sell no, stuff saying, to make a living. I'm not saying selling <laughs> stuff is unethical. What I'm, I'm saying is that manipulating people into buying something they don't want yeah. maybe is unethical. I mean, that example, that was the old book club model where you, yeah. you had to, you know, sign something in blood before they'd take you off their list and then they, they had your... Had you, you forever. Yeah, had your right. bank account details and they were going to rip you off. That's wrong. But it's yeah. like, the other thing that really annoys me is, you know when you go to a website and you sign up for a service and you're using it as one of these monthly reoccurring services, and then you want to cancel it for whatever right. reason, and you can't find the option to cancel <laughs> it because they've made it so tiny and so difficult? For me, that, that's just, it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. So I think that level of manipulation is ultimately bad for your brand and bad for the website. Right. So you've kind of got to be really careful with this kind of stuff, where you draw the line, I think. Yes, we have a question. Yeah, with regards to your call to action being a donation, um, yep. I work at RBC Ministries, and we do the Our Daily Bread daily devotionals. Yep. And that is our call to action. We give out these free devotionals. You can get it on the web and print. But we don't have pictures of orphans to put up on our website to say, hey, donate to us. Yeah. Um, how do we perfect that um, call to action? So we're talking about call to action to encourage people to donate, but you're not comfortable with with having starving children looking poorly and yeah. Or it's not appropriate. It's it's not relevant. No. How do you do it on the Bayard World site? Do what? Ask people to donate things you've done it in the past, haven't you? I just do it very matter of factly. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. I often think front. people respond very well to honesty. Mm. Um, you know, and just uh, and I mean, obviously, there's loads of things you can do in terms of your call to action, how they're positioned, where they're positioned, the size of them, the wording that is used on them, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think at the end of the day, sometimes the best approach is just an honest, straightforward, you know, appeal to people. And I think we sometimes make the assumption that people are inherently selfish, when, and I don't think they always are. Um, and sometimes they do want to help, and it's just a matter of making that clear and easy. Um, and, you know, non-confusing. Yeah, this, is, this is actually linked to the, the previous question about manipulation. Because the, the, the whole idea of putting the starving child on, on the website or on the TV ad obviously must work because all of the, the major charities do it. Um, you only got to flick through any kind of cable network and you find, you know, the offbeat channels and it's all the charities showing you pictures of starving children and saying, give us money. So it must work. Or polar bears. But isn't it just, is that just manipulating people? Certainly. 
Certainly. Cer- certainly that's manipulation. Everything we do manipulates the audience's mind to some degree. Yeah. And it's not a binary thing of manipulating or not. It's a gradient yeah. from manipulation to deception. Yeah. yeah. And everybody has to draw their own line when it turns from one to the other. Yeah. Uh, just a thought I had on your, on your donation side. The trouble with with the web in your, in your situation working against you, it's such a visual medium. So if you don't have pictures of something, it's very hard to influence people with merely text. Yeah. Uh, and just an idea off the top of my head, could you show pictures of the uh, of the the after picture rather than the starving before starving children before picture? Perhaps the results that the donations bring in. If there was a way you could visualize that, that might be a pr- an approach. I, I think I spot on what, especially what you were saying about not being a binary thing. I think yeah, you're absolutely spot on. And in terms of the second point you made about showing the positive, and we're actually working with a charity right now, a big big lobbying group in, over here in the U.S. And we've strongly encouraged them, you know, they're an environmental lobby group. And, you know, mm-hmm. we strongly encourage them. The, the answer is not to show birds covered with oil. You know, the answer right, here right. is to show we've, we've, you know, we've actually overcome these problems. We are positive. We, we've got a positive message. Because I do think with starving children and birds covered with oil and that kind of thing, people feel like they've been banged over the head time and time again with, you're crap, you need to donate, you're not doing well enough, you're not saving the planet, etc. When actually, you know, a more positive message sometimes works a lot better. Exactly. And what you're trying to do is evoke emotion. And starving children photos and, and birds covered with oil certainly provokes emotion, but the question is, does, is do you want a positive or negative yeah. emotion, and which one works better? Unfortunately, it's probably the negative that tends to sell more product or make more donations, but you get back to that gradient of uh, uh, kind of a moral gradient between yeah. manipulation and... And, and sometimes deception. you need the, the positive to differentiate yourself from everyone else that's doing the negative. You know, there's a, you know if everyone is, is showing birds covered with oil, then perhaps you need to be the person that you know, shows the clean-up afterwards you know, to differentiate yourself. Could be a di- good differentiator, yes. Brilliant. Thank you. That was brilliant. Yes, next. Well, well it kind of goes along with it. I just think that the interesting, interesting thing now is that we've, we've had advertising and marketing. You know, we've been bombarded for, for so long now. It seems nowadays people might be kind of just used to it and you know everybody's kind of turning into sheep it's like you need to make the decision for them because a lot of people don't make a decision anymore and if you don't you know manipulate them somebody else is going to so from a business standpoint if you don't do it somebody else is right so yeah i mean it <laughs> doesn't I make it right though does it <laughs> honesty is a great way to go right and that might be eventually it'd be great for that to be a new a new direction right to kind of go away from advertising but the thing is now it's everywhere, right? And, and a new service, Twitter, comes now. It's got to turn into advertising and marketing, right? It's yeah, everything. Everything is right. It's like people don't make decisions for themselves anymore. Somebody else has to. So, I mean, interesting. It is interesting. Like I said, I, I like honesty too, but it's everybody's doing it because it's like they have to, right? Because if they don't. Yeah. I do think things are getting quite interesting with the web as well in terms of, you know, what is it, um, Gary Vanderchuk is talking about the, the thank you economy and that actually, uh, the thank you economy, this idea that if you give somebody something, they kind of feel obliged to give something. I mean, that's manipulation as well. You know, that's uh, the, my favorite example ever of this was the, um, the Obama campaign. 
okay? That they're, essentially, they're, their call to action on their, their website is donate now and we'll give you a free T-shirt if you donate over a certain amount of money. So they motivated people to, to donate by giving them something in return. Of course, what they were giving them was a massive big billboard that people walked around <laughs> with saying, I think Obama's wonderful. So it was a win-win situation for them. And I think you know, that kind of manipulation is just very, very clever, personally. Anyway, we're running out of time, and I want to move on to um, this idea um, of refining your website. Um, and the, uh, this, it's quite hard, this idea of, especially um, if you're working internally with an organization or if you're an agency, persuading a client that redesigning the website once every three years is not the right way to go and that actually they should be continually evolving and improving their website over time is a much more beneficial way to, to, to work on their website. And I was just uh, wondering if anybody, you know, panel, audience, whoever, have got any opinions about how to kind of convince clients or convince management uh, that they need to be continually investing in their website. Anybody got an opinion on that? Yes. Oh, right, Marcus. Well, just interestingly, I think it was Craig mentioned to me last night that he went to a talk. Probably wasn't Craig, probably somebody else. Um, yesterday, where basically the guy was saying, that's not right. We should be complete. Oh, th- there is a case where we do need to start again from the really? ground up. Okay. Um, well, I'm paying attention now, Marcus. Reason be, I can't remember why. Um, <laughs> no, it was to do with the fact that it, if you kind of. There's a point you reach where you can refine, refine and refine and refine and refine, and you can't get any better. So you have to start again to get past that point to get to here. Yeah? Okay. So if you've got, you've got your site, you refine it, you refine it, refine it, you can get to you know, point A. But if you want to get to point B, you might actually have to start again and scrap the lot. That was, that was the, that was yeah, the, it was, the element. It was uh, Josh Porter's talk on metric, oh, okay. metric, metric-driven design. So what did you think? Did you agree and he with was, that? Well, I agreed certainly with what he, the way he was saying it. He was saying that if you're doing metrics like A-B testing, mm. then A-B testing is only going to take you so far, yeah. and then you're going to reach a point of, of diminishing returns. And the way he, he, he had a graph that showed like a topo, topographic whatever map you know, with a mesh, and it had two bumps in it, and one was small and the other one was big, and it, it basically said, you know, you're here halfway up the slope to the top of the small bump, to like a local maxima. Yeah. And doing metric-driven design where you're basically doing the A-B testing or whatever is only going to take you to the top of that hill. Yeah. And it can't get you down the slope and up the top of the other one. To do that, you basically have to step back and say, well, let's rethink this. Okay, yeah. maybe, the appro- maybe we've refined the approach that we're taking as much as we can. Maybe we have to take a new approach. Yeah. But I, I also, I, I do tend to, and I agreed with that, but I also think people... Uh, you know, I tell people if you, if you, when you find usability problems, I'm trying to get them to focus on the worst problems they have right now mm. and, and tweaking them to get rid of them rather than waiting for the next redesign. Because if you say, okay, this big, this big problem that everybody's running into is going to go away in our next redesign, mm. well, the next redesign is, gonna, is like at least six months out, and it may, it may never happen. So in the meantime, people are still going to be running into that problem when, in fact, you could go in and fix that problem by doing some, some tweaking. You could yeah. at least mm. take it out of the category of a really serious problem. So I think it's silly to wait for major redesigns to, to, you know, to make yeah. significant changes. I mean, that's, that's been our position. It was just, this, was, this was a kind of new way of looking I at it. I mean, it almost goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the usability and design delighter thing. That, okay, you know, I think the, the baseline should be, you know, refine, improve, 
And I think for the vast majority of people, they need to get that right before right. they start thinking about big redesigns. Yeah, um, yeah sorry. Oh, I've heard you uh, talk before about uh, this, the, the constantly evolving site. And uh, I'm sure, like myself and all, all the agency owners who listen to this podcast, go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great, that's great. <laughs> but uh, but how, do you, how do you really sell that to the client? They, I've, it seems like that would, they, they would first be skeptical. Of, of your agency or, yeah. your, or just the pitch themselves and then how do you get them past that and get them to a point of actually buying into that because I, I think if it's done right it can be better for them financially that um, that the problem we have at the moment is a, ca- is a cash flow thing that organisations have to, so they, you know, they do this massive expenditure on, on getting a new site right um, that costs them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever your, your, your currency of choice is, then the site slowly declines over time as it becomes more and more outdated. So there's only a small window where the website is its optimal self, right? And it's declining and declining and declining. And then in three years' time, suddenly they've got to find another massive chunk of money to relaunch the website again. And so, so what they're, they're, they're doing all the time is having to find this big capital expenditure. While if they turn it into an ongoing expenditure at a much, much lower level, tweaking and refining the website, the website is running at a, a, a more optimal level continually. And also they're not having to suddenly budget in huge expenditure every three, mm-hmm. three years or so. So that's the kind of approach I tend to take. Does it always work? No. You know, sometimes, sometimes? sometimes it does, sometimes okay. it doesn't. But that's the kind of approach that I tend to take. Do you have metrics now. or anything that you show them on, on, on that? No, I just make it up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be the way I do most things. <laughs> Hello. Hi, I'm Carrie Santi from San Francisco, and I use metrics to coach my clients into that. Oh, brilliant. Because I'll say, all right, so we're going to do this, and we'll see how it works. And you need to know if it doesn't work, we need to figure out how to change it. Yeah. And just planting that seed early on. And being honest with them about you're going to want to budget more for six months down the road. Yeah. Because they have all these ideas that we can't test until we're done. Yeah. At least in my case. Yeah. Ongoing testing makes makes a lot of sense to anyone. If if we're going to do some kind of multivariate or A-B testing um, to make your site better and perform better, then a client is going to think that's a good idea. And, and there will be a price tag attached with that. Absolutely, and it goes back to what we said about success criteria earlier, that if you don't have success criteria in place and you can't measure the success or otherwise of the website, and it amazes me how few clients know, you know, A, why they've got a website, and B, how to measure it. I know we're running out of time, Marcus. Right, last question of this session. this is based off of, and you guys were talking about uh, metrics, so sure. I'm assuming that's mostly automated metrics that are based off of computers and whatnot, but what about the custom, direct customer feedback and how that plays into refining the site and the ongoing process of that? Yeah. Uh, Rob, you t- I'm, t- I'm thinking about um, Wiltshire Farm Foods here and how they feed in customer feedback. Is there, uh, what, what, how do they do that? Uh, well, it's, always, it's, it's difficult for any site to, 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 to grab email feedback or especially telephone feedback um, and, and actually show that how that change or that feedback has a direct impact on the website because you can't 
if, if, if you're changing, clicking on a button, you can click that, or you can check that automatically, you know, because it's all tracked through. But when someone calls you up and says, "This doesn't work," can you do this? And then it gets changed six months down the line. You never know what that point of reference was. Um, so you can do things like, you know, use uh, specific. Make sure you're using specific email catches so that different types of query go to different places, um, or even set up a dedicated telephone number on the website, which only takes website-based queries, and then you can track whether or not someone has used that phone number um, um, to launch that query. Um, it's not foolproof, um, but, it, but it's a good way of tracking that kind of thing, and that's certainly what WFF do. Yeah, and they also, um, they send, they also are constantly sending us through emails of kind of typical queries people are having with the website so that we've kind of got that feedback coming in the whole time as to what real users are saying about the site as we work on it. So that's always really helpful as well. Steve, so you looked like you were going to say something, or, or was, was I imagining? No, I just wanted to remember to, to uh, pimp my workshops. Oh, yes, you've got to pimp your workshop. Yeah. This is really important because it's going to annoy uh, uh, Lou, Lou Rosenfeld. Rosenfeld. I promised Lou yeah. that I would pimp our workshops. Okay, so, pimp your so workshops. Go for it. He, he will. Um, uh, because we're notoriously bad at, at publicizing them, so, so we have to take every opportunity again. Um, Lou Rosenfeld and I are once again going around doing our day long workshops. Um, in fact, Lou's is. is um, uh, called Adaptable IA, uh, how to um, say no to your next redesign. Exactly on that same hobby. So you words. could have pretended it wasn't. A I big could thing. have. I could have. Could have just worked it in cleverly. Yeah, you could have. Um, so you're not but, very good at this. No, part, no. I, I, the, only manipulation th- I, the only thing I know is blatant self-promotion. Yeah, well, that's, that's fine. It, that's it. So, um, uh, in fact, I'm going to start doing a blog, and I have three categories on it: usability, blatant self-promotion, and other. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, but anyway, we're we're going to be in uh, in. Uh, I do a day. Lou does a day. And we're going to be joined by uh, Indy Young on Mental Models, Whitney Cuisenberry on Storytelling for UX, and Jeannie Reddish on Writing for the Web. And they're going to be in San Francisco, Atlanta, and Chicago. So if you, awesome. if you go to my website, it is awesome. They're actually very good. I mean, yeah, I really love a- these people who are going with us. And um, You need to bring it to the so. UK. Uh, yeah, we we almost did again. I mean, Lou and I have been there a couple of times. Yeah, and we, no, lo- yeah. we love it, and we would love to go back. But it's just cool. hard to work out. Oh, brilliant stuff! So. Uh, well, uh, we're going to skip over our final section, driving traffic, as we have run out of time. But I've just got this horrible feeling that we'll need to do a joke. Are we going to have to do the joke? Can we skip. <laughs> we don't have to. Someone else can do a joke. And we got a good and joke. And we got a good joke. Come on, mm, one of you's got to have a joke. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> it's me, Marcus. If it's not you. It's a good joke. Tell oh, yeah. Yay. It's really quick. Uh, a skeleton walked into a bar and said, give me a beer and a mop. <laughs> well, I didn't even hear that. A, a beer and a mop. A beer and a mop. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit slow. You want a Marcus's, do you? Okay. I have actually told this joke before, uh, and I re- relayed it to, you, to Paul yesterday, and he couldn't remember, so I figured I could re- risk doing it again. Go on, then. Okay. A couple of hunters are out in the woods. When one of them falls to the ground, he doesn't seem to be breathing. His eyes are rolled back in his head. The other guy whips out his cell phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps the operator, my friend is dead, what can I do? The operator, in a calm, soothing voice, says, just take it easy, I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence, then a shot is heard. The guy's voice comes back onto the line, he says, okay, now what? <laughs> you laughed! No, some of you cracked and actually laughed at the joke. I made it very clear. That, according to the University of Hertfordshire, is the best joke in the world ever. Have <laughs> done scientific research into this? Yeah, probably ten people. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to do one last thing just to, 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 um, to finish off with. This is for my own, to prove a point to myself. Okay? Uh, yawn. <sighs> right. 
Will you raise your hands if you think the intro music at the beginning of the podcast is too long? Yeah, way too long. Oh, no, I, so I think I win. You win? Oh, arse. <laughs> I'm really disappointed in you. Oh, well, never mind. Um, and then, yeah, just to remind you, if you've enjoyed today's show, whether you're here in the room or whether you're um, elsewhere, then please visit um, South by Southwest for japan.org forward slash Boag World and give some money. Then drop me an email and you'll get a free copy of Building Websites for Return on Investment. Thank you very much for coming and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> The podcast for those involved in designing, developing, and running websites in the